host Maeve, and this week I'm joined by Chelsea James, a writer for the Washington Post covering Nationals baseball. We talk about how she keeps her writing fresh through a 162-game season, the art and skill of play-by-play tweeting, and you definitely won't want to miss our rapid-fire segment, so make sure to listen all the way to the end for that. But first, it's This Week in Sports. Remember back a couple episodes when I talked with Jenny Vrentis about the women's version of the Rooney Rule? A quick refresher, the Rooney Rule dictates that a female candidate will be interviewed for any open executive position in NFL offices in an effort to increase gender diversity. Jenny made the good point that unless the teams come on board as well, it really wouldn't be that effective overall. Well... The San Francisco 49ers are the first NFL team to officially announce that they will implement the Rooney Rule for all their open executive positions. 49ers CEO Jed York said that his mother was a big influence on the decision. Denise DeBartolo York is the team's principal owner. And, just a quick Fierce Lady side note right here, she's also one of the few women whose name appears on the Stanley Cup after the Pittsburgh Penguins won during her tenure as the team's owner and president. But back to the 49ers, the Yorks agreed that it was an important statement about the principles that guide their franchise, and I especially loved a comment from Jed referencing his mother, and he said, I owe it to her, and we owe it to people like my wife and my sisters, that if you love sports, you should have an opportunity. Mostly, I think that this is a great example of diversity in decision-making already at work. You have a woman at the table, and she invites more to sit down. So this is really excellent news, and bravo to the 49ers, and I look forward to seeing how their organization expands. Next up, the U.S. Women's Olympic basketball team was announced earlier this week, and it is quite the lineup. Nine of the players have already won at least one gold medal, and veterans like Sue Bird, Tamika Catchings, and Diana Taurasi are back. They've each already won three medals, which I think really speaks to the longevity of their careers and their talent. The newcomers include Elena Deladon, Brittany Griner, and Brianna Stewart, who is, of course, coming off a really sensational college career. And the team is headed up by none other than UConn coach Gino Ariema. If they win in Rio, this will be the women's sixth straight gold medal, so I'm really looking forward to watching them play when the games begin for them in August. Okay, so that does it for this week in sports, and when we come back, I'll be talking with Chelsea James. Welcome back to the show. I am delighted to have Chelsea Janes joining me today. Chelsea covers the Nationals for the Washington Post, and she is a prolific play-by-play tweeter. So we'll get to all of that. But first, Chelsea, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, so let's start simple and easy and where most good stories start. What is your background and how did you get into sports reporting? Yeah, I grew up in New England, huge Yankees fan, uh, surrounded by Red Sox fans, a lot of them in my family, uh, and was pretty outspoken about the fact that the Red Sox had not won a World Series for much of my childhood since 1918. That was one of my favorite numbers. 
And then obviously they came back for three games and from that three game deficit and kind of changed my life. I kind of shut up from then on, but um, yeah, I played <laughs> so rare for baseball. a Yankees fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I learned my lesson. Uh, I played little league baseball and actually baseball uh, until high school, and then I had to switch to softball. Played softball for high school and college. Um, kind of accidentally found my way into sports writing when a girl across the hall worked for the paper. I had no idea what I wanted to do. She, I knew a lot of the athletes just from playing sports, and she needed to get in touch with one of them, had a lot of homework, was very stressed. I said, <laughs> yeah, like I can do that. I'll write it if you want. I thought it would be funny. It was. And then it just sort of spiraled, and then I looked up, and I was interning places, and it had kind of chosen me. So it was a nice combination of things I like to do in sports and writing, and um, kind of been at it ever since. Wow. So without that friend needing you to pose as her, what would have happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, in fairness, I think we ended up putting my name on the article, obviously. But uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, I never it's funny that I had never thought of doing it before because I really had no other plan. But it was it worked out really nicely. You're obviously a beat writer, meaning that you cover the same team for the whole season. Um, baseball has a notoriously long season. It covers 162 games over six months. So with a season that long, what is your approach to keeping your reporting and your stories fresh? You know, it's it's not too hard, honestly. It's, it seems like something crazy happens every day and there's always something to look for. I think I'm lucky enough that I really enjoy baseball and my life was sort of always partitioned off into seasons anyway you know I had softball season and the winter was spent getting ready for that so it's sort of natural to fit into this rhythm but I you know I I like there's a lot going on you know with 25 guys in there and all the coaches and sort of all the little dramas that play out over the course of the season I think if you enjoy the game and you know can appreciate you know can get over the daily grind of it all it's not too hard to find new things I think I also try to remember how lucky I am to be at those games and not paying for it. So that's another thing I try to remember if I do get a little bit bored is, you know, there's got to be something fun here because somebody is at this game for the first time and really happy to be that way. And I kind of want to remind myself of that when I when things get a little bit tedious. Definitely. That's a good perspective. When you're putting together a piece, uh, what's your typical process behind that? How do you kind of switch between the day-to-day coverage and some of your more in-depth stuff? It's it's interesting. The day-to-day stuff uh, is sort of dictated by who's available and what's happening and how much time we have. So there's not, it sounds, I don't know, a little bit reckless, but there's often not much process there. It's sort of, you know, this is something we need to talk about. Who can we find to talk about it, you know, by deadline? And how can I talk about it by deadline? And, you know, game stories are sort of written on the fly and We have to send one right when the game ends. So those are always sort of a product of the time and what's happening in the game. And if I happen to talk to somebody about what's happening in the game beforehand, then I can give a little more insight. But a lot of it is sort of just by the seat of our pants. You know, we try to prepare, but it's tough. Yeah. And the long-term stuff, it's it's t- you kind of just have to keep it in the back of your mind and go in each day and try to talk to somebody or a couple people to get you know, perspective on things and, you know, save it all in your brain and your notebook for a later date and bring it all together. So there's always a lot of moving parts. And I don't know that I've totally learned how to handle them all yet. But it's definitely just sort of a constant chaos. And you just 
I've learned to just be a little bit comfortable in it and comfortable with producing what I can in the time that I have. So when you're uh, filing pieces, are those happening, you know, right after the game ends or kind of what's the turnaround time? I feel like as consumers, we just expect everything to be there exactly when, you know, we search for it. But on your end, what's the timeline actually like between getting to the ballpark and then publishing a piece? Uh, you, yeah, it sounds like as consumers, you think very much like our editors. You know, I think they want everything right in live time, <laughs> um, which I understand. But yeah, we usually get to the park and uh, we talk to the manager and have about an hour to talk to the players. So usually after that time, we're able to kind of put together the notebooks and the little injury updates or whatever. And those are usually sent in by about an hour before the game. And then during the game, we ha- uh, have to send one, you know, sort of basic story right when the game ends, which is very stressful when it's like a walk-off home run. <laughs> sometimes I, I will write three or four stories in an inning sometimes because you just don't know what's going to happen, but you wow. have to be ready. And then we go downstairs, we talk to the players again, and then we come back up and we have a little more time to write, generally speaking, but there have been sometimes we're up about 10 minutes to kind of revamp an entire story and make it worthwhile and it gets it gets interesting wow and so i want to go back to sort of the more in-depth pieces and where those fit into your schedule are they kind of ideas that you go into at the beginning of the season like i know i want to cover this that and the other thing or are they kind of evolving as the season happens a little bit of both and i think that i still am trying to figure that balance out myself but there are sort of ideas that i go into the season with that my colleague goes into the season with james and we sort of know that each other's working on that so if we hear something we'll say hey you know here's uh, i heard this guy talking about it maybe go over and ask him about you know this topic but generally we kind of go into the season and with all the day-to-day running around and the players aren't necessarily all available to talk every day so it, you kind of just have to take that idea and see where it takes you over the course of the season. And I know so far, I feel like I've made no progress on anything this year. And it's already, I look up, it's the end of April. And I was just like, oh gosh. So it's it just really is dictated by sort of the action of the season, which always seems to go faster than you think it's going. Yeah. Well, lately you've written a couple pieces about pitchers. You did one about Gio Gonzalez and then... A, a really recent one, it might have just come out like yesterday the, or the day before, about the Nationals' bullpen and how they're kind of coming together and gelling, especially after that crazy 16-inning game on Sunday. Um, so are there differences in kind of which pocket of the team you're writing about or getting in touch with? Like, is the bullpen really relaxed, but you know, the like starters every day are very stressed out and don't want to talk. Are there differences like that? Or is it more like player by player? Uh, it is player by player, but the it is funny that you mentioned that because the bullpen does tend to be very relaxed. I think <laughs> that they're just used to sort of the chaos of their lives. They don't really have to be focused until midway through the game. So they're not never, they never seem too stressed. I think if they were always stressed, they would probably lose their minds, you know. Yeah. Um, and the starters are generally fine. They, there's sort of an unwritten rule that you don't talk to them the day that they're actually pitching. Uh, and the, but in terms of position players, they're usually pretty relaxed too. I think these guys have learned to sort of tone down their pregame stress levels, you know, because they play every day. I don't know how they'd be able to do it if they kind of couldn't just ramp it up at game time because they'd be all, you know, consumed by it. But sure. everyone's pretty relaxed. We're very lucky with the Nationals Clubhouse, to be honest. There's a lot, just 
a lot of people that really understand the that the media has to be there and they're willing to talk and um, maybe not give away state secrets. Obviously, sometimes <laughs> they can be a be a little cagey, but you know we understand that too. So we're very lucky. They have they have a nice mix of guys in there. So I came across your work via Twitter, um, and you tweet a lot of play by play coverage. And play by play is a I think a very unique and hard thing to do well. Um, so how did you develop this skill and how did you get into play by play? People have different opinions on whether, you know, Twitter should be used that way. And I hear things on both sides of it. I hear, oh, I love that you kind of do as much as you do. And then I hear, you know, stop it mostly from my colleagues who have it show up in their feed all day. But um, I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm honored that you call it a skill that it's like done in a way that makes sense to people. But I did a little bit of actual physical play-by-play, like on internet broadcasts for uh, hockey games and various other sports in college. And I think in doing that and sort of hearing how I needed to improve, you sort of realize what's important. I guess the goal is sort of always to add a little more context than you could get from just watching the game or something. But I also know that when I am not working, I like to know what's going on and I'm not necessarily listening to the radio or able to watch TV. So when I see these updates pop up on my phone, I feel a little more connected. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know how where it came from. I think I've gotten a little bit better and smarter at it over the years, kind of learning what's a necessary update and what's annoying. But uh, I don't know. I think it just comes with time and understanding what I, at least I try to think of it as what I would like to know and sort of providing it that way. Now, you mentioned that you used to play by play for hockey and I mean, I'd imagine that maybe doing play-by-play for baseball, the pace is a little bit slower. You have a little more time to think things through. Does that seem true to you, or are the stakes so much higher in baseball or something? I don't know. I think it's very different. I, Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I think baseball is just sort of a different animal. Um, I think that every play is so kind of statistically important that maybe play-by-play takes on a little bit of a different – importance you know to an average fan I think hockey is sort of a different game and you know all those kind of scoring sports are very you know flow oriented and if you're not talking about every single play you can kind of just catch up but I do think that people want to know when Bryce Harper gets two hits as opposed to three and people want to know if this guy walked and that's sort of you know why I think it's a little bit more important to be so kind of on top of things especially on Twitter because the statistics just matter in a way that they don't in other sports and everything is a statistic um, at least offensively. So I, I don't know if that kind of answers the question at all, but that's how I think about it, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I think that baseball has such a huge wealth of background and statistics and also just a history of that being so folded into the game um, that it would kind of be like hard to imagine baseball without that level of analysis, even from your just right. everyday fan. Um, but you also mentioned that you – like play-by-play because you can also add some context in there. So, and I've definitely noticed this in, in your feed and it's it's part of why I started following you um, more closely. So when, when you're putting those pieces of context into your tweets, whether it's, you know, a quote from somebody or a statistic or like really digging back into the vault of knowledge of baseball, are those things that you're anticipating before the game? Like, oh, well, I know that, you know, uh, you know, X players going for his hundredth hit of the season or something like that? Or are they much more like seat of the pants when you think of them? 
I do think I've changed the amount of preparation I put in to sort of be ready to give that stuff. I try to look ahead and see, you know, what's the big story for each player each day and really just be ready with those little things. And, and you know, also the, the PR staff sort of, if somebody's close to something big like that or if something interesting is happening, generally we'll toss it in their game notes, which is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point I'm just reading them. But sometimes I'll kind of think about it as it's happening and quickly look up a statistic and realize, you know, oh, this guy is doing X thing a lot or isn't doing X thing a lot. And that sort of comes to me in the moment. But um, it's, it's a little bit of both. But I think that uh, in an effort to provide more context, I've prepared a little bit differently to try to have that sort of at the ready for when the situation comes up. Makes sense. What are your resources for finding these sort of contextual nuggets? Like, I think that baseball's really famous or or maybe gets made fun of for stats that are sort of like, you know, on on days where he's facing a lefty and the temperature's below 60 degrees, mm-hmm. he's gone, you know, like seven for eight. So mm-hmm. where are you getting these nuggets? And is there just like one giant database and how does it work? <laughs> There, there are a couple. I mean, without plugging anyone really too much, there's this baseballreference.com has this thing called a play index where you can sort of search all those factors that you just mentioned and it'll spit out, you know, the number of games that this has happened. And so that is a time sink, I think, for me and a lot of my colleagues where we just get kind of sucked into looking up absurd statistics. Yeah. And, you know, it's so easy to find that this is the first time that this very specific thing has ever happened. Right. And we're all like, oh, my gosh, like, that's amazing. And then you think about it, you're like, that means just nothing. Right. But there's that. And then a site called Fangraphs, which is really good about sort of the minutia, you know, what pitch is being used when and how much it's moving now as opposed to a year ago. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times those things... Um, maybe aren't super interesting to the average person, but can sort of indicate a bigger trend that maybe a guy's arm is sore or he's changed something, and then you can use it that way. So there are a bunch of databases, and it's sort of like anything, just kind of learning where to look. And I think that once I found those, I felt a lot smarter, even though I really got no smarter and just had more resources available to me. Yeah. Do you feel like you have to be have some pretty specialized knowledge? Like baseball is is kind of the original sport to really embrace analytics and you know this whole like money ball thing do you feel like Mm -hmm. as a reporter who's day in day out covering the game that there's an expectation that you have this new level of knowledge about that stuff or are you still kind of like trying to look at the bigger picture stuff and communicate that I think that baseball requires a little bit more understanding of the game than maybe another sport does to cover I mean I think I would really need to work to understand football or something like that but there's just so much nuance in baseball and so much that I benefit from having played or having watched it my whole life and I also think the fans are very different I think baseball fans and people ask me all the time if I think DC fans are sort of up to par with you know fan bases that have had teams longer and they just absolutely are because they they are very aware of what's going on and I think the average baseball fan who's following our stuff really knows the game in a way that maybe an NBA fan doesn't or and that's kind of a gross generalization but I think the <laughs> average baseball fan is just very aware of that nuance too so I think you have to come at it with I always try to think of it as what can I add that they may not know and I think that that level that threshold is a lot higher with baseball than it is with a different sport and so it sort of keeps us on our toes and always hunting and trying to learn more and ask questions so 
it is, I do think it's a little bit challenging in that way that the people that are following along really, really know what they're looking for. Well, I'm glad that you brought up fans in your audience because I had noticed, I don't know if you read the comments left on your articles, but I was actually really impressed at the tone of the comments and the level of knowledge. And they sort of seemed like the ideal commenters, like they were staying on topic. They were saying knowledgeable, insightful things that added to the conversation. A, why do you think that is? And B, um, do you ever like use insights that you get from commenters and incorporate that in your reporting later on? So to the, the quality of the comments, that's, you know, I think, I honestly don't read them very often, um, and I'll explain why, but I think that the post readers are just very, I think they're there because they want a certain level of discussion and insight and maybe, you know, I just think, I agree, I think they really know what they're talking about. I think that the tenor of those comments changes with the tenor of the season. Mm-hmm. And I think last year, near the end, when things were a little rough, they maybe weren't quite as kind. Uh, <laughs> there are definitely a few people that will use that section to be mean and nasty. But there are so many more that say very good things and smart things and, and stuff like that. I, I learn a lot more from kind of Twitter feedback. I think maybe because it's right on my fingertips and a little, you know, I don't have to go look for it necessarily. Yeah. But... I think, um, as a rule, I try not to read the comments on my articles just because I know, you know, if somebody says it's good, I, I'll be really excited. But if someone says it's bad, I'm thinking, oh, you know, who's this guy? <laughs> but I sort of realized that that's a very arbitrary way to approach it, that if right. I'm going to take the good, I should probably take the bad, too. So it's probably just better for my sanity to kind of shut it all out. But I think, um, I, you know, when I get emails and stuff, I, I read them and... I do think they're very intelligent. A lot of the times if someone has a criticism, they're spot on. And, you know, I do my best to kind of respond that way. But, yeah, I think having an intelligent fan base like that really just pushes all of us to be, you know, smarter and better. And we're really lucky to have commenters that by and large are trying to kind of further their knowledge as opposed to just like, you know, say ridiculous things. Yeah, I mean, I it's really like, I was really impressed. I know that Washington has a reputation for being like very well educated and well informed, but also sort of wonky. Like that was a whole marketing campaign that the Nats did a couple years ago. Um, But it's like really ringing true, I think. It's like it was great to see. I was very encouraged. Uh, Okay, so last question on Twitter, just kind of from a bird's eye view more generally. How does Twitter or or your presence on social media more broadly influence your work and and your longer term career twitter is an exhausting medium it it requires us to be first uh in a way that i think sometimes it requires sort of all sports reporting to be you know to engage in this race to be first to report things that i don't always think is healthy or smart and i sort of have mixed feelings about i mean i always you always want to be the one to break a story but i think we've seen a lot lately that it often comes kind of at the expense of the whole picture or maybe even the, the accuracy that you'd like. So in that way, I sort of have a little bit of a pushback against Twitter. Um, I just think it kind of forces you to always be engaged. And I, I think my generation, we like I don't think we think anything of that because we grew up that way. But I know older reporters who just don't understand how we can keep up with that pace because... Mm-hmm. You know, they were able to file once a day, twice a day, a notebook before the game and a story after. And if something right. broke, it was in the next day's paper. They had a whole day, you know, to keep it quiet. So right. 
now it's it's almost like whoever gets it first gets it first for about 30 seconds before someone's confirmed it and yet the pressure to be first often precludes the kind of accuracy you'd like so i think it's sort of a bubble that has to burst i really don't think it's sustainable that there's this crazy race to be first at the expense of accuracy sometimes Mm -hmm. and it's it's something it's really hard not to get sucked into when you see people throwing stuff out there and you sort of want to break the news but it's like you know we're not sure yet you got to hold back and it's very tough to be disciplined when you know it's so easy too for people to say oh why aren't you reporting anything on this it's like well we're not sure yet. You know, maybe it's right, but we, we got to be sure or else we look just as dumb. So it's, it's an, as you can tell, I have some strong feelings on both sides of Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think everything you just said is like universal to journalism more broadly. But my last question, I know I said that was my last question, but this is really my <laughs> last question. Um, do you use your Twitter feed at all when you're writing up the game afterwards as like kind of notes? Is it serving a double purpose? You know, I think the only time will be if I'm not totally sure. If I'm working quickly and not 100% sure of when something happened, I can sort of, you know, who got that hit first. I mean, we can always look back in the box score, but maybe quickly can just look at Twitter and say, oh, this is when this happened. But generally speaking, no. I've heard from people that they can sort of see my story forming in my tweets, which is really interesting. And I guess that's sort of how it forms, you know, if I really focus on something and in Twitter it tends to be the focus of the story which is probably how it should be but it's really interesting I just hadn't realized that that was a pattern that was happening but it yeah I think it I also think Twitter makes me focus during the game a lot because I want to keep those updates coming you know you sort of always have to be engaged and really thinking about what's happening so in that way it is sort of a note-taking device because it sort of makes me study as as the game's going on so yeah, I think it, it helps definitely in terms of keeping me keeping me on task. Yeah, cool. It's like the modern day scorecard or something. <laughs> right. I, yeah. Um, all right. So kind of looking at play-by-play more broadly, not just in terms of its form on social media. Um, in broadcasting, there certainly aren't too many female announcers. There are some notable exceptions, like Jessica Mendoza for ESPN, or Susan Waldman is a um, longtime Yankees announcer. Um, but on the other hand, I think that we're seeing more and more female reporters in sports more generally. So do you have any notion of, of why announcing uh, as a unique form of reporting is kind of lagging behind in, in this gender gap? I think in writing, the actual voice doesn't matter. I think that you, you know, people got used to reading male writers for so long, but reading words, you don't necessarily notice if it's a male or female. You know, if you didn't read the name, you're not really getting anything different there. You know, there's no necessarily distinct sound to a a woman's writing as opposed to a man's writing. You know, everyone has their own distinct sound. Right. I think that people, at least from my perspective, and I, this is just me talking a hundred percent, no research. Like, I think that, you know, people got used to the male voice being that voice. And so there's something to listening to sports with you know, this voice in a certain vocal range and you just get used to it. You know, it's sort of like if you had a guy yelling during a golf tournament, you'd think it was off, you know, because you can't nap to a guy yelling excitedly (laughs) at golf. You know, you just kind of get used to it. And I think that that's the change is, you know, Susan Waldman and and Jess Mendoza and people like that, they don't sort of fit that bill. It's not what you're used to. And I think anytime that happens, you have to, there has to be an adjustment and people will be like, oh, well, this isn't how it's supposed to be which isn't true. It's just not how it was. And 
I think that that's, you know, both of them do a great job. And, you know, I think people realize that. I mean, Yankees fans don't seem to have much of a problem with it, and they're a very hard fan base to please. And now that they're used to it, I think, you know, they don't probably think a whole lot of it. So, I, you know, I think that it's just a question of sort of changing the norm, and that takes, obviously, a very long time. Yeah, definitely. No, I think it's a very big deal. I, I think it's a huge deal that, I, in that she's an analyst there and, and, you know, breaking down people's swings. And, you know, I do think she probably, and I've seen just in the way she kind of goes about it, just works kind of her butt off to really be at that level of analysis. Not that she has to, you know, pick up on any knowledge she didn't have, but she just has to apply it, I think, a little bit more thoroughly than a male might mm-hmm. to sort of prove herself. And you don't want to think that that's true, but I you know, I definitely feel it. I think you do have to prove yourself a little bit. I think you, you she didn't play Major League Baseball, you know, and I didn't play Major League Baseball or even play baseball in college or anything. So there is sort of a bit of proving that you do know what you're talking about. But that's, that's sports, you know. I think that's anywhere. That's in a yeah. bar. If you don't know what you're talking about, people won't listen to you. So... Um, but I think it's a big deal that she's doing it. I think it's she's handled it all just so well and done a great job. And um, I think I it's really it's nice. easy to look good next to Kurt Schilling, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, yeah. And I do. Th- I want you know. I think ESPN deserves credit for putting her there because it. There are probably a lot of kind of old school people that are thinking, "Why are you doing this? You can pick any baseball player you want." But they tried to pick someone who'd be good for the job, and I think they found her. And I just think that's really just kind of a a bold move on their part. And they're going to really reap the rewards, I think. And I hope that it keeps happening. You know, I hope that it, like you were saying earlier, like it just takes a little time to get used to the norm. And I hope that this continues to be the norm. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so let's move on to a a little, a little bit, I don't know, maybe deeper and darker. But um, so you mentioned uh, at the beginning of this conversation that part of your uh, reporting includes obviously going to the locker room and talking to players. Um, what is the locker room like? Because for female reporters, it's and women more generally who are fans of sports, it's this sort of symbol of the original barrier to entry to to this profession. So, how do you think that we're doing in 2016 in terms of I don't know, shall we call it gender relations in the locker room? <laughs> I think we're doing really well. I, I mean, I, I understand why people ask about it all the time, but it's yeah. just kind of a non-issue. I mean, I, you know, I, I think you also kind of get into this knowing what you're walking into. I don't expect it to be this really perfect, you know, hoity-toity environment. I, you expect to hear people swearing at each other and guys making fun of each other and crude humor. You know, you expect that. But in terms of how they treat me and how they treat other women that I see in there, it, it's they're totally respectful and I you know I think everyone by now is sort of numb to it really I think there's so many cameras in the locker room after games so many female you know reporters on the sideline of various sporting events that it's sort of just the norm I think people sort of think they're all walking around naked in there and changing all the time it's just not the reality of the situation they you know the showers are separate they are almost always clothed. It's not, it's a very open environment. There are a lot of media, a lot of various people, representatives from companies walking around. You know, it's, I don't think it's quite as insular as people think. So, you know, I I honestly have had maybe two or three moments where I felt uncomfortable. And, you know, that was honestly, none of them were problems. There was no situation where I felt like I needed to tell somebody anything. No one's ever made me purposely feel uncomfortable. So, 
I think we've come a long way and I know that it wasn't always like that. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, that's, I mean, I like, I, in a weird way, I like that you use the word numb, like people are just numb to it. I think that that is probably like the best indicator of the status quo and and how things are today. So that's nice to hear. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's been great. Um, so the other thing I want to ask about is certainly players, coaches, managers, whoever, you know, they're human, they're not perfect people. They sometimes say or do things that are on some scale of disagreeable to like pretty heinous. Um, so when, when somebody that you need to work with or get a quote from or whatever, when they do something, when they behave badly, essentially, um, how do you balance that with with what you need to do as a reporter to get your work done? Like, how do you deal with your personal judgment versus your professional uh, capacity? Because I find it difficult as a fan sometimes to, like, watch these players when they sometimes have done something that I find, like, pretty offensive. It's hard. You know, I, I really struggle a lot with the fact that somehow everything they do becomes everyone's responsibility to know, you know, that if someone were talking about me, you know, and I think it's totally separate sort of what I do away from work and what I do at work. And, you know, hopefully they wouldn't find anything that they would take offense to in either realm. But, you know, I do understand that we're there to talk about baseball, you know, and and it, it is hard for me sometimes to understand and commit to the fact that these guys have put themselves out there in a way that makes everything they do subject to scrutiny. And I certainly know that that's true. And I certainly, you know, approach it that way. And I think, but it's, it's just hard, you know, it's, it's like, why, you know, why is that? Is that fair? Does it matter? And I don't know. But um, fortunately, we really haven't had too much terrible stuff, you know? Um, so, but I think, I think that there's a baseline understanding on their part and on our part of what our respective jobs are. And I think that, for example, in the case of Jonathan Papelbon choking yeah. Bryce Harper, that is sort of an egregious personal, you know, it, you just can't do that, obviously. And that's sort of where we have to become moral arbiters. And he knew that he had to apologize. We knew that we had to ask him for his reaction. And there's just an expectation that that's the case. And I think, you know, Jason Worth, you know, had a major speeding ticket and had to go to jail for a few days. He talked to one of our reporters to sort of explain himself. And that was sort of the expectation. And it is very hard to, or, you know, even when people say things they shouldn't, when, you know, Dusty Baker said something earlier this year that was a little bit off color and had some right. racial overtones that people didn't like, it was like, well, he knows he has to answer for that. We know we have to ask him to answer for it and it happens and it's over, you yeah. know, but it's, it's, it's really sort of tough because I'm not as accountable as they are. And sometimes I feel a little bit of a twinge making them more accountable than the average human, but I also understand why it's the case. And I think they understand why it's the case and sort of it just balances out that way. Yeah. I mean, I think from a fan perspective and, you know, not just in baseball and kind of sports more broadly that these players have like an incredible opportunity to do something that most people don't get to do. And it's a real privilege. And sometimes they just get so many chances or um, I mean, like Greg Hardy, of course, comes to mind where like, why is he still welcome in the NFL kind of stuff? So like, I get what you're saying that, you know, there's a balance and there are expectations on the players that other people don't have to meet. 
Um, but do you think that kind of as a culture, as a, as a fan base, we're shifting to maybe holding people accountable in a way that is fair, but just has historically not been part of the game? Yeah, and definitely there are situations, Greg Hardy and some of the other, you know, more gruesome or unacceptable things that I haven't had to deal with. You know, my perspective is colored by little incidents that all of a sudden become big incidents and, you know, you kind of cringe. But there are big incidents that should be big incidents where I think maybe people do get a pass. And so it is a really tough balance. But I do think that the way leagues are responding to these things empowers all of us to sort of, you know, call people on things that aren't appropriate. I mean, I'm sure that people got away with a lot of things in the domestic violence area of things and players sort of, that was, that's been a problem for a very long time that only now is just becoming sort of a, you know, a scarlet letter for people that, you know, you can't do that and still be appreciated as a player. You know, people really take them to task and I think that's great. But I also can see the other side of the argument that there are little comments that are made or taken out of context that get blown up now in this day and age. And I, you know, I don't mean to compare that to kind of actual, you know, felonies or violence, but there's just sort of two sides of the accountability spectrum. And I think that the players have, you know, they just have to deal with a lot in that way. And outside of those big crimes, there is sort of a tough line to walk with, you know, why is this guy so much more accountable for this sort of one out of context thing that was said or whatever that maybe a normal person wasn't. But I just think it's gotten 10 times easier to hold people accountable for the big stuff. And I think that leagues are doing that. I think teams are doing that. I think the tolerance has just gone down a great deal with all the social media and kind of the way that these things spread now. And I think that that's obviously a very good thing. Yeah, kind of a double-edged sword. Um, But it also felt like the MLB and the NBA and the NHL, to some extent, were kind of at an advantage because after the whole Ray Rice situation with the NFL, which was really kind of the threshold where a major line was crossed and there was major public outcry, that those leagues, since they weren't front and center, kind of had more time to rethink and re-gauge what their response as a league, as an organization would be. Completely, absolutely. And I think that those guys have done a pretty good job of it. I think MLB has tried really hard to handle these things the right way and not, I think that Commissioner Manfred has done a good job of not trying to handle them the right way for public perception, but handle them the right way, period. You know, not let his, you know, I know the Araldus Chapman suspension is sort of, MLB's first foray into domestic violence kind of retribution and they really hit him fairly hard in a way that they thought wouldn't get appealed in a way that they thought was fair given that there were no charges but in a pretty stern way and I don't think that if they had sort of let public opinion or perception play into that they would have come to the same conclusion and I think that it's very good to see that you know right and wrong is sort of I think that social media and the way the world is now is sort of pushing right and wrong to the forefront in a different way but I think that I, you know, you've seen good jobs on the part of the NBA and MLB in setting what they define that as and kind of sticking to it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that struck me about the Chapman situation, which I was kind of pleased to see, uh, is that there seems to be this idea that if there is, if there aren't any charges filed, if they're not found guilty by a jury or a judge or whatever, then. Like, there's no reason to punish these players. As an employer, 
they don't have to follow the same standards of legal recourse as the as the law system does. So I'm mm-hmm. sort of pleased with the Chapman situation to see that although from a from a legal point of view there wasn't much to go on, MLB did feel like there was enough that as an employer they uh, would go ahead and 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 put on their own punishment on the situation. That seemed to be like a different sort of precedent. Right, right. And I think that that's the other side of all of this too, is it, you know, you want to believe that it's totally from a purely moral perspective and try to keep good people in the game. But there is a, you know, a monetary marketing aspect to it too. And you can't have people in your game associated with stuff like that, even getting kind of involved with anything shady or, you know, untoward. And I think when MLB punishes someone who hasn't been charged, but's just kind of been put themselves in a bad situation. You know, I think that sort of speaks to that side of it, that we can't kind of have you guys making bad choices, even if you don't necessarily get in trouble for them. Yeah, agreed. Um, All right. Well, so (laughs) I feel like we just have had, you know, some pretty serious conversations. So let's lighten it back up a little bit. Um, So baseball is definitely a sport known for superstitions or routine. Um, We heard a little bit about kind of how you go through reporting a game, but do you have any like weird superstitions or very particular things that you do in your routine, like a baseball player might? I do. And I get made fun of for it every day, but um, I actually eat the same thing every game day uh, (laughs) before the game and during. And no explanation I've ever given has let my colleagues sort of lay off me for that. They you know, everyone, when you're on the road and in the park every day, food is sort of like a consolation, you know, it's there and they have great food in the press boxes. But I always try to go to the grocery store and, you know, even on the road and, and get ingredients and keep everything exactly the same, uh, partially because my stomach gets upset a lot, but also just because I'm just weird and like to think it matters somehow that if I eat the same thing every day, I'll be in the same mental state every day and just kind of be more consistent. Oh my god, this is amazing. This is like a way better answer than I thought I was going to get. Yeah. What is it that weird. you're eating? Do you care to share? Uh, no, it's fine. I before the game I generally have a like turkey and avocado sandwich if that I can get good. it. Um, yeah, and then for dinner I have a very exciting almond butter on wheat bread sandwich <laughs> and I am literally constantly ridiculed for it by the people around me so it's and i usually have an apple at one of those two meals it depends how i'm feeling so it's a pretty uh raucous diet that i have wow who knew do you think that this is like rubbed off from being around crazy baseball players or have you just always been like this particular (laughs) i think i think it comes from like playing sports in college where there was a lot of time management and like trying to get enough sleep and stay healthy enough to like make it through and so i just established some sort of obsessive habits that probably would require therapy of some kind kind in any other (laughs) world, but are borderline normal in baseball world. So it's sort of just let me continue and think that it's like a normal thing to do. (laughs) Um, Okay, so just to wrap things up, I thought that we could end with some rapid fire questions. Um, Are you ready? Are you prepared? (laughs) (laughs) I think so, yeah. (laughs) Um, All right, so there are nine of them, but they'll be fast. Whose walk-up song do you like best? Uh, I like Bryce Harper's first one because I think people associate with it, him with it and it with him, and it just seems to work very well, and it's kind of a cool moment every time he comes to bat for the first time. 
That's true. And I heard that song at a bar once and I was like, this is Bryce Harper's walk-up song. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I like don't even know what it's called. I just know that it's Ex- his. <laughs> exactly. That's the best kind in my opinion. Yeah. Um, okay. Favorite ballpark food if, you know, you take a break from your usual <laughs> diet. <laughs> I, I really like chicken fingers when I, you know, I'm forced to go that route. Strong choice. Strong choice. Um, how old does a kid have to be before you don't have to give them a foul ball anymore? Ooh. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a good question. I think probably about 18. Wow, 18. <laughs> I appreciate enthusiasm at all ages. So I like if somebody's really excited, I think that they should get a ball. That's super generous. I would have gone with like 12. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how it works out in, in actuality, but that's my initial answer. <laughs> that's great. You're very generous. Um, all right, number four, pick a racing president. <laughs> uh, I think Teddy, just because he was so beleaguered for so long. He persevered. Okay, this is actually a very serious question, and I have this debate a lot. Um, for listeners who may not know, the Nationals, during the fourth inning, they have these like huge uh, mascot presidents, and they race. And for the first couple seasons, the Nats did not let Teddy win. He never won. And then the first time the Nationals made it to the playoffs, they had Teddy win. And there had been this whole big campaign, like, let Teddy win, let Teddy win. It was really fun. And then they let him win, and the Nationals not only didn't didn't continue on in that playoff run, but ever since they haven't made it past uh, what, like, the, the division championships. So mm-hmm. do you think that by letting Teddy win, the Nationals are cursed. I'd honestly never thought of it, but it, it could be. I I think that was a lot of fun that he never won. I think the ways that they made him lose were amazing and funny. Yes. And so I, you know, I think there's something to it. And now, you know, they add Herbert Hoover and he wins his first three races. It's just sort of, you know, silly. It's too easy. Well, all I'm saying is that the pattern lines up that once Teddy started winning, the Nationals stopped winning. Mm. I'm just interesting. I'll bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. If you want to write an expose, that's fine by me too. Yeah, exactly. Um, All right, number five. What emoji would you put on your bat? (laughs) Oh gosh, that is an amazing question. Uh, I'd probably put like the sleepy, the sleepy Z's emoji because I hit like 175 in college. My dad never really woke up, so I think that's a good way to do it. (laughs) That's hilarious. Very (laughs) self-deprecating. Yeah, I mean, just trying to be accurate. (laughs) Um, All right. The ex-Nats player that you miss most? I think everyone probably misses Desmond, uh, Ian Desmond. He's just a a really good human being and a guy that kind of left on a a sour note with a rough season. So I think people would love love to have seen him kind of get a little bit of a redemptive moment before it all ended. Yeah. I miss Michael Morse because he started that great song in the eighth inning. (laughs) Take on me. And now we don't do it anymore. And like the eighth inning is is a lot less fun. So I miss him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. We're almost to the end. Number seven. Uh, Yesterday, Bryce Harper had a day off and he went to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. What DC landmark would you visit on your day off? Ooh. Um... I should probably go over to those museums. I haven't been in a long time, but I usually actually go on pretty long walks to up up the mall. So I guess I'd have to say the the monument or the Lincoln Memorial, since that's usually what I do with my spare time. 
excellent recommendation. Lincoln is also my favorite monument. Um, okay, in a non-creepy way, because I'm also from Massachusetts, I looked up your hometown. So mm-hmm. would you rather go to Sturbridge Village or Six Flags New England? <laughs> Sturbridge Village. Yeah, Six yes. Flags is a, is a scary place for me. I, I, I just, I don't know what it is. Too much roller coaster tycoon, I guess. I don't know. I just think it's a scary place. I mean, nobody's been killed at Surbridge Village on a roller coaster. That's all I'm saying. Right. right. That's, I think, yeah, you said it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, last question Who is your favorite female athlete? That's a really good question. Um, I think I might kind of cop out and say the entire U.S. women's national team. I think. The soccer team, I think that they've just done a really good job, not only of obviously winning, but of sort of marketing themselves and their sport and by and large being good role models, but also sort of accepting, you know, there have obviously been some blips along the way. And I think they've kind of handled them more actively than some male athletes have had to. You know, I think they're the most high profile women's athletes that we've had. I think they're treated as close to the same as a male sport, you know, professional sports team as any that we've really seen um, in terms of sort of being in the public eye, being accountable, being, you know, expected to win all the time. And I just think they've really embraced it well and really kind of carried the mantle for a lot of issues they didn't have to tackle. And I think that mm-hmm. they've really sort of embraced it all. And I, I like the way they've handled it. Obviously, there are sort of exceptions within the team. And there's people that, you know, maybe haven't handled that spotlight as well. But I think by and large, they've done a really good job and embraced their, I think they really are kind of torchbearers in a way that I don't know that people thought we could have torchbearers, you know, in 2016. Yeah. But yeah. they've really done a, a job that I don't think anyone else could have done. And I think they've done it pretty well. I agree. And I had never thought of the role model thing before in the way that you just mentioned of like they're role models when they're good and they're also role role models when they're not so good, Um, which is important. I mean, that's like what character is, right? Great pick. All around great picks across the board. (laughs) One through nine. Excellent rapid fire round. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, And as I say to all of my guests, good game, Chelsea. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Chelsea for joining us. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter. We are at NYBF Sports. Give us a like on Facebook. We're Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. And you can always shoot us an email at nybfsports at gmail.com. And you should definitely visit our website, nybfsports.com. And while you're there, please sign up for the newsletter. Emails are weekly and they alternate between sending you the newest episodes and then in off weeks, a collection of links to some of the best sports journalism around curated by yours truly. So thanks for listening and good game, everyone.